So this morning, we want to dig into a few things regarding the resurrection. I'm going to borrow heavily from Bruxy Cavey this morning. And uh, we've been using Bruxy's book and going to form it as part of a discipleship practice here in our church. But Bruxy has a wonderful chapter, chapter 16, where he talks about this idea of the resurrection and wrestling with that. And so I'm going to invite you to follow along with me today as I just unpack that and share with a few other things thrown in as well about the resurrection and assessing the evidence and why believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing we want to name today about the story of Jesus is that it was the story of the resurrection was early in the Christian uh, history and unexplained. In fact, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, For I passed on to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Bruxy put it this way, There was an unbroken line of teaching about the resurrection of Jesus that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jesus movement. Contrary to some historical revisionist pop atheists, this, the teaching of Jesus' resurrection was the core teaching going all the way back to the beginning. In fact, the resurrection is what launched the movement. If there was no resurrection, there would have been no followers of Jesus and no later Christianity that developed out of that. But they were not expecting him to rise from the dead. Even though he hinted at it, and even though he said it in his teachings, the Jewish expectation of messiahs, and there were many messiahs, was that the Messiah, the true Messiah, would come and establish God's rule and reign, political authority, as they understood it in that moment. So when Jesus died, that was an ultimate blow to their belief. He failed all of their expectations. This is why the Good Friday crowds as well, when Jesus said, I didn't come to establish a kingdom like the Roman Empire or the New Jerusalem as you would envision it right now in his lifetime, why the crowds on Good Friday were saying, crucify him, but by the time they, excuse me, on, uh, I should say on Palm Sunday, were saying, Hosanna, and praise to him, but by the time they get to Good Friday, they're saying, crucify him, because he shattered their expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. But the disciples still followed him, and then when he is crucified on the cross, they scatter. I should say not all of them scattered. Some of the women disciples, who because of later patriarchy, and our own biases uh, tend to get written out of the story, but are very much there in the story of the gospel. Some of them hung around. But his main male, his 12 male disciples, they scattered. There was this sense of what has happened. There was no expectation in their part that this person would rise from the dead. So three days later, when the tomb is investigated, and the women come to the tomb, and the tomb, the stone is, stone is rolled away, and it is found empty, and an angel in one of the gospel, in the gospel accounts, tells them that he is not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is risen. And the women go and tell the apostles, and they run to the tomb. Some of them run to the tomb to see the empty tomb. I like it. I think in John's story, John outruns uh, Peter to get to the tomb. You can see a little bit of the rivalry in there. That's not our gospel reading. This Sunday we're reading from Luke. But the apostles are preached to. The first preachers of the resurrection are the women, by the way. That's a whole other sermon I could preach right now, but I'm going to resist that one. They did not expect that there would be this, uh, this, this story was not expected. No Jews expected a resurrected Messiah. And so Jesus, something changed. The second thing is the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Say it with me. The tomb was empty. Nobody expected there to be no body. <laughs> if the body was there, the religious folk, 
that were against Jesus and the political leaders of Rome could have ended this whole Jesus thing right then and there, produce the body and end it for all time, but they could not produce the body. Instead, the earliest accusations were made up by the hostile authorities, and the earliest accusations were claiming the disciples stole the body. The earliest accusations were we need to figure out how to cover this up. We can't find the body. In terms of historical uh, scholars, this is positive evidence from a hostile source, positive evidence from a hostile source that they had to make up a lie to try to cover up what was going on, even though the disciples weren't expecting any of this at this point, which is another strong evidence for the empty tomb. There's so much more we could say about that I won't do on this morning. But the third thing I want to talk about in terms of evidence is the disciples saw something supernatural. They saw something that radically changed. They all had unfollowed, and what they encountered three days later caused them to re-follow Jesus. What causes that? Something happened. Most historians agree something was unexplainable, that they believed to be Jesus. N.T. Wright, Stoller, says this, two things which must be regarded as historically secure when we talk about the first Easter are the emptiness of the tomb and the meetings with the risen Jesus. These two phenomena are firmly warranted based on how the disciples responded and what they recorded themselves and the eyewitnesses. In fact, the Gospels tell us <clears throat> that there were over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus post-crucifixion, after his crucifixion. <clears throat> so I want to make sure I'm still there. See things flickering on and off? Okay, all right. The, the production team's giving me, it's Okay. They shared a supernatural experience, and they were so empowered by this experience after being utterly crushed by the crucifixion that they were willing to suffer and die to proclaim that Christ is risen. Say it with me. Christ is risen. Truly, He is risen. Christ is risen. Against all their Jewish religious expectations. We know that people might die for a lie if they think it's true. But for a whole group of people to die for a lie that they would have known to be a lie, they knew to be a lie, without a single defector, that is utterly amazing in human history. That points to the historicity of this fact that Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. Truly, he is risen. And Saul of Tarsus, by the way, who wasn't even a follower of Jesus, has an encounter with a risen Jesus that changed the trajectory of his whole career. Imagine you've invested a lot in a career in a certain culture, and part of that also involved persecuting Christians or persecuting those who are following Jesus. Think about deconstructionists in North America. And Jesus appears and changes the trajectory. I pray this morning for some of you that you have an encounter with the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and that it would change the trajectory of your course that you would become like these disciples, our post-deconstructionists, as we move out of Christendom into a new place where we can hear the story of Jesus again with fresh ears and see him with fresh eyes. The fourth piece of evidence that we want to speak to and I'm going to just geek out a little bit on this, that the women were the first witnesses I already did. But I love this one. The testimony of the women in ancient world, especially in this ancient uh, vortex of the Greco-Roman culture and the Jewish culture, was generally legally worthless. It was less than men and somewhat worthless. So that all four Gospels have recorded that women are the first witnesses and the first preachers to the apostles is another indication of the historical reliability. If you're going to cook it up, you don't cook it up with women as your primary witnesses first on the scene. 
And yet, we see this in all of the recordings, that the women were the ones that were there, and they wrestled, and they declared that he is no longer there, that something has happened, and then the apostles experienced this firsthand testimony, and then go experience it for themselves, and Jesus appears to them. You would not have used women as witnesses if this was a made-up story. Or scholars say there's this criterion of embarrassment that points to real history as being recorded here in these ancient bibliographies, these ancient <clears throat> biographical stories. The fifth evidence piece I want to point to here is the Messiah movement continues. Even today, many movements continue. But unlike any other Messiah movement, after the death of Jesus, the movement continued stronger than ever. All the other Messiah movements, once the Messiah dies, either someone else picks up or a relative picks up. But in this case, the Messiah movement following Jesus continued. This was unparalleled. To continue to follow Jesus and his brother, and his, and his brother becomes a leader in the church, what would it take, by the way, for a brother who was a skeptic to turn around, who shunned his own mother for believing in Jesus, now to die for this very same belief in Jesus as the Messiah? The brother didn't take on the mantle of Messiah. The brother continued to proclaim that Jesus was Messiah and is and has risen. James, his brother, dies a violent death for believing in his brother as fully God and fully human and risen from the dead. What does it take for you to have that kind of belief in a sibling? That it happened, that you experienced it. You believed it and you knew it as a truth. and You walked in it. Now I want to give you a few more things here before we end. I hope you're still awake. Say amen. <laughs> this is also from Bruxy's book and it really sort of hits home with me. What are some other ways to embrace the resurrection of Jesus? And he puts it this way. He said, many Christians believe the resurrection of Jesus affirms the truthfulness or the veracity of the teachings of Jesus. Many believe the resurrection proves the truth of the teachings of Jesus. That they can trust the gospel, his good news message, because of the resurrection. He goes on and he says this, I understand this, but here's my confession, and this is good. For me, it works the other way around. And the teachings of Jesus form the veracity or the truthfulness of the resurrection for me. He says, there's something about the message of Jesus that leads me to trust in the mission of Jesus. Jesus as teacher wins my trust in Jesus as Lord. In other words, his teachings lead me to affirm the resurrection. He says this, the more I study and apply the teachings of Jesus to my life and help others to do the same, I'm... The more I encountered wisdom's children, that is, the more I become convinced of this one fact, that the teachings of Jesus fit the needs of this world perfectly, and they bear the marks of the miraculous. You may not be ready to embrace the resurrection, but if you dig into the teachings of Jesus, it is unparalleled and has, it's still unparalleled in human history. The greatest miracle is his message and his words and his life. We can test Jesus' teaching today in a way we cannot test other miracles. We can test Jesus' teaching today in ways you cannot test the other miracles because when a supernatural thing happens, unless you were there, even if you were there, you can forget it and deny it and write it off as we often do if we encounter supernatural things that break our norms. We find ways to explain them away, but the teachings can be verified by practicing them. And as you practice them, you experience the anointing and power of the risen Christ in your life. And so I want to invite you to be followers and do his, to follow his teachings. 
I can test what points towards the truth of Jesus, and I can then be more inclined to believe what I cannot test. Here's four examples really quick as we get to the last half here. Jesus alone offers us an objective evidence to what our souls intuitively want to believe about God. Jesus alone gives us this evidence, and he says this, we want to believe, and it is true, that God is love. Will you say it with me in your room and at home and in this place today, that God is love? One more time, God is love. Jesus makes this more than emotionalism and sentiment. Love is the very law of the universe. It goes all the way down, and he makes that point in his teaching and living again and again. God pours his love out on all people regardless of their worthiness. It's unconditional, and Jesus lives it out in his life, teachings, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. But in the way he lived and taught that God's love is there for everyone, accessible and available. The cross, the crucifixion, by the way, reveals two things at the same time. Our human cruelty and depravity, and then human love towards, and and this man's love, rather, Jesus' love towards his accusers, his torturers, and his murderers. It reveals our cruelty and depravity, and then his love towards accusers, torturers, and murderers. When he was on the cross, it's recorded in the Gospels that some of his last words were this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is God being revealed before all of us for all time. And that's God's posture towards you this morning, wherever you're at on the journey. Father, forgive them, for they don't even know what they do, denying my existence, pretending I'm not there. And his love towards you is outrageous. He does not issue warnings and judgments from the cross, but prayers for forgiveness of persecutors. That's so opposite of our conservative and woke entrenchments. Jesus goes well beyond justice into mercy that transforms oppressed and oppressor Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For all of us, in some places, in some form, are in all of those categories. And Jesus comes to break those cycles. And when he rises from the dead, he continues to do the same thing. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. He is love. You cannot, not, uh, you cannot over-love God. I mean, God is, there's nothing, God cannot love. <laughs> and this can truly change us and transform us. What other evidence from Jesus' teaching? Jesus, number two, Jesus alone saves us from the power of pride and shame through the force of forgiveness. Jesus emphasizes this idea of forgiveness in a way that we just don't see. We love as we are forgiven. We forgive as we are forgiven by God. Forgiveness, to quote Henry Nouwen, is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. I love that. Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is, he says, that all people love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour increasingly. And the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak is that uh, that human family, Henry Nouwen. In Matthew 6, 12, Jesus calls on us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In Luke 17, verses 3 through 7, he says, Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times forgive. In John 11, 23, he says this, Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. Sorry, I think I just skipped over my note there. Oh, no, no. Yeah, he talks more about this. Sorry, I did skip over my note. Put the other page there. One of those days. It's Easter Sunday. Seven times in saying repent, you must forgive him. Forgiveness is needed to sustain well-being. Even our soft sciences now tell us that. They're catching up to Jesus' teaching, receiving and offering forgiveness. 
We're talking about personal peacemaking here at Pilgrim in our current teaching series. We have to use honesty to heal, not simply hold on to eternal grudges. And my fear is right now we need the teachings of Jesus more than ever and the church is turning to inward. More than ever our society needs to hear how does forgiveness function? How can we learn to forgive and experience healing? Holding on to grudges makes us bitter, weary, self-defeating, corrosive, sets us up as ultimate judges, and we make for horrible ultimate judges. Right now in North America, we're seeing failures not of not learning justice, but also that justice needs mercy. Otherwise, we simply keep flipping roles and aim to elevate the most oppressed, and Jesus breaks us out of the cycle of violent justice, retributed justice, into something different, a different kind of justice formed and shaped by mercy and love. One more Bruxy quote on this one. Offering forgiveness frees us from the weight of bitter anger while refusing to deny the wrong that was done to us. Receiving forgiveness removes the weight of shame and self-loathing over wrongs that we have done to others. And in both cases, giving and receiving forgiveness opens up the possibility of relationship healing. Jesus taught this as an indispensable element for the flourishing of human relationships long before modern psychologists came to realize its importance two more here before we end jesus sets up a kingdom in john 18 36 he says my kingdom is not from this world if it were my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the jewish authorities but as it is my kingdom is not from here the jesus kingdom is a way of living in relationship with other people not based on uh, war, but based on peace, based on cooperation instead of competition. It's based on inclusion, not based on geography or ethnicity or gender or any other way we like to categorize, criticize, castigate, and separate people. It's an anti-ideology way of being together. It's an anti-antagonism. Jesus' kingdom is the opposite of all the kingdoms and tribes that we have experienced in the kingdom of the world. And that points to the truthfulness of who he is. I like how this says, uh, Bruxy says here, the atheist friends point out that religion makes things worse because it can be used to justify anything, thereby making atheism the preferred moral alternative. And he said, I agree with their critique of religion, but I cannot accept atheism as an improved moral framework. In fact, it removes objective morality and the categories of absolute good and evil, and thereby, like religion, can be used to justify anything out of the frying pan and in to the fire, but Jesus sets up a different kind of kingdom about shutting down religion in its atheist or other forms. And we live a different kind of way in Christ. We need an objective source and accountability, and Jesus sets this up in his way of peace, that this is the way of living. The pursuit of love is the way. And every violent movement in nation believes it's justified in its violence, working towards eventual peace. But Jesus tells us that violence as a means to any justice does not result in justice, just results in cycles of violence and retribution. But he comes to break that. And we have bought into the lie, whether through militarization, whether through activism on the left and the right, if we move into violence, once we move into that, we are dehumanizing and we are making the world worse. And Jesus gives us another way of standing up for truth and love that is rooted in this way of peace and self-sacrifice that breaks the chains and exposes the injustice in the world. And on the cross, he reveals that. Jesus teaches us that love is the objective moral power behind all of creation. And the apostles declare this when they are reflecting back on Jesus, for God is love. 
Jesus offers you peace and purpose and a place to belong that your heart yearns for, this community, this spiritual family, as federal citizens. Fourth and finally, only Jesus shuts down religion as an imposter, pretending to speak for God who is love. I already said this, but let me restate this. Jesus offers the truest you, your soul rest. From the weight of religious legalism while still inviting you into purposeful partnership with what God is doing in this world. And Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened. Are you tired of the cycles of retaliation? Are you tired of all of the frustrating fights within our society? Are you tired of justice never truly coming? And what becomes justice becomes a new oppression, becomes a new justice and a new oppression. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my way of love on you, my way of peace, because it will transform how we are humans together in the family of God. It says, take my yoke on you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my load is not hard to carry. Jesus speaks to our human condition now like never before. In fact, he does in every generation. But as human history goes on, I think it gets even more and more defined and sharp. He speaks to the human condition as if God has insider knowledge he knows what we need, and he's giving us the owner's manual for human flourishing. One more quote, what Jesus teaches convinces me of who Jesus is. What Jesus teaches convinces me of who he is. And once I accept who Jesus is, then the resurrection makes perfect sense. The resurrection matters. It validates his message. And his message also validates his resurrection and gives us a glimpse into the future. One other thing we need to say about the resurrection is this. Jesus said that this resurrection was not just for him, but he is the first fruits, and the apostles talk about this in the New Testament, that the resurrection is a snapshot, is a view, a preview of what's to come for all people everywhere. That one day when he comes again, he is renewing all of creation, material and spirit together, the resurrection leads us into something new. N.T. Wright says this, Jesus is the start of the creator's new world. It's a pilot project. It's his pilot. After Jesus' resurrection, we're told he could walk, talk, eat, wear clothes, but also move through doors and walls and fly. If you've ever bought into any sci-fi or belief in anything at anywhere, this is, this is what they encountered, they experienced, they recorded, that that's what is to come in terms of the redeemed and fully saved from sin, material and spiritual woven together. Imagine what you'd be like with all the scars and works of disease, known and unknown, pollution's impact, all gone. This is the kingdom to come. And God's ultimate goal is a union of heaven and earth. Spirit-infused physicalness, matter-infused spirituality, becoming more real than we could even possibly imagine now. So I ask you today, on this Easter Sunday, wrestle with the evidence, the historicity. Wrestle with the teachings of Jesus, because you can test the teachings of Jesus. You can live them and apply them and see how your life changes as you decide to follow the way of peace. When people say, well, I don't know if I can get there, well, then start with the teachings and live into that. And you will experience the power of God and the resurrection power in that. 
Will you welcome the Holy Spirit of Jesus into your life and begin to get a taste of that resurrection power? Will you choose to embrace the love focus, that God is love, this peace way of living, the Jesus way, this Easter? Will you consider that? Will you consider becoming a follower of him this day? I invite you into that experience this morning to follow him, to say yes to Christ. As an Anabaptocostal preacher, I would be remiss to not give you that opportunity to say yes to Christ, to take a step of faith this morning. It's super simple to do, to begin to declare your allegiance to his teachings. You can say something like, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, come into my mind. I sense your spirit outside of me in my life wrestling with me. I want to invite your spirit to come and dwell within me. And here's the thing, if you invite God's spirit to dwell within you, he will come and fill you. And that's the beginning of a journey. Admit that you need something greater working within you than is currently there. Believe, take a step of faith in his teachings. Believe in the power of love and then work your way down into something more specific because love when it's abstract is not really known, but love when it's personal becomes known. We know that in our common life, it's the same thing with God. When you name love in Jesus, it becomes real and alive. And you begin to walk in that, his lordship, his allegiance in your life. I want to pray for you this morning. And if you want to take some of those steps and you want to talk about it more and you'd like some more personal prayer, please contact us. There's information there. There's phone numbers. There's texting. There's email. And uh, we definitely can set up a time to chat. I'd love to help you take some of those next steps this morning. Let's pray as we prepare to leave this place today. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your work by your Holy Spirit. And as we wrestle with both the evidences for the resurrection, the unexpected occurring, a Messiah that wasn't supposed to rise from the dead, women that weren't supposed to be the first witnesses, and all of the things that happened, that Peter, uh, James even willing to die and to go from skeptic to follower to one who's willing to die for this one. We want to lean into those evidences as well. And God, also about the evidence that comes from following the teaching that points to the truthfulness. We can test the teaching, even if our doubts persist on the historicity. We begin with the teaching, and the teaching begins to open us up as well to your word. So whatever angle we're coming at today, Lord, continue to work on us and draw us into your kingdom for your name's sake. Continue to use your church, the weak and foolish things, to confound the wisdom of the world and to reveal another way of being human. Use us, Lord, we pray. Christ is risen. Truly, he is risen. Amen.